Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Here we are at the end of our series on the paranormal. Halloween came early, often, and stayed a while this year. And to quote T.S. Eliot and Bob Dylan and a few other poets besides, in our end is our beginning, and in our beginning is our end. No, I'm not being cryptic. I'm actually referring to the fact that our guest for the final show in this series is none other than the guest who inspired us to do this in the first place, Lisa Livingston Martin, who joined us this summer to talk about Missouri's Wicked Route 66. If you haven't already heard that episode, turn your podcast dial backwards so you can listen not just to a collection of remarkable stories about the Mother Road, but so you can hear Lisa describe a truly spooky encounter with the unseen involving a house she was once trying to buy, a ghostly hand across her neck, and, well, I'll let her tell the rest. You might want to listen with the lights on. But anyway, thanks to that story, our idea for a series on the paranormal in American history was born, and we are delighted to have Lisa back on the show to talk about her other books published by the History Press, particularly Haunted Joplin, which has some of the craziest cases of the weird, the unsettling, and the strange of them all. Lisa, welcome back to Crime Capsule. It is so good to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed uh, being on before, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. It's kind of hard to believe that it was uh, July, you know, about four months ago since we had you on the first time. You know, we've gone through two more British prime ministers since then. <laughs> Things move quickly, and a monarch. <laughs> That's true, and a monarch. You're absolutely right. I mean, time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> In our last conversation, we only learned at the very end of the show, that you were not just a historian, you were not just an attorney, but that you were also a paranormal researcher. So for this show, I want to reverse that order of discovery to start with the paranormal first, and later we'll talk about the methods and the approaches that you use, maybe some of which come from your uh, academic training and your legal training. So, Lisa, tell us, how did you get your start researching the uncanny, the spooky, and the weird? Well, um, it really is a lifelong interest. I, I grew up in a house, that a farmhouse that had activity. And from an early age, I figured out things went on that not everyone saw or heard. And we couldn't exactly explain. So I've always had an interest in the paranormal. And then as I grew up, went off to school, I think just my innate curiosity, you know, kept going. And then some experiences that I had personally over time got me interested in, okay, I know these things happen, but why? And that question hooked me. Why do things happen that we can't explain? And for me, it's the process of, of trying to figure that out. The, the process is as fascinating to me as any end result. So over time, I ended up gravitating towards researching, uh, getting as much knowledge as I could, then getting into the field and actually researching 
then working with historic sites. And as I worked with historic sites for promotion, for education, preservation, uh, ones that were haunted, it naturally segued into let's explore these situations. And as people became more open to, I want a haunted experience, uh, working with historic sites allowed me to do ongoing investigations and research so that um, there are places that I've literally been thousands of hours and continue to build that body of evidence. So it's just been that organic process of a curious mind and opportunities to make use of it. You mentioned this farmhouse and farmhouses actually appear quite prominently in your work on the paranormal, owing, I'm sure, much to the landscape and the geography of where you're writing. Uh, t- will you tell us just a little bit about your own personal childhood farmhouse and the activity that you saw there? The farm uh, has uh, been uh, part of the family since the 1850s, and uh, although from another part of the family. And then my, my parents moved there in the 60s, and so I grew up there. And what we found out over time was that it was, a, it was a, the location of multiple Civil War skirmishes in activity, which made sense when we looked back at things that happened, because one thing that happened is the farmhouse, although it was built after the Civil War, probably around 1900. Where it sits is on a hill that basically has a command of all directions. And so it was a, a perfect lookout point. There was a small settlement um, on the land uh, down by a river. And one thing that would happen is we would you would see the outline sometimes more detailed but often more of a shadow outline of what looked like a soldier um, sometimes carrying a rifle sometimes not often just standing not interacting not not seeming to be aware of us um, and so once we figured out the history I think it was probably someone that was on picket, that was on lookout, um, never felt threat. Well, when I, 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 I should step back. When I was very, very little and this would happen, because sometimes it would happen in my bedroom, and you wake up and see this, and uh, I'd be startled. Um, but probably by the time I was four or five, I figured out he wasn't doing anything, he wasn't bothering anything, and then it kind of just became, oh, he's here. You know, um, just as kind of as if someone else walked in or your dog walked through the room. I mean, it was, he's just part of what happens. And so I kind of I kind of figured out fairly early most things that happen, they're just kind of doing their own thing. And we may be walking through as a shadow to them. I mean, I, I didn't have it in those kind of words, but intuitively it just seemed to be that's how things felt to me. So I grew up knowing comfortably that, okay, things happen. 
Um, and of course, I was always interested in these kind of subjects anyway. Uh, other things that would happen, uh, sometimes there would be um, some sounds, you know, footsteps, that kind of thing, that you think, oh, someone came in, you go, look, no one else is there, that kind of thing. Uh, my mother had an experience that um, startled her, and for a long time, she really, my, my mother was a very um, skeptical person for a long time. Everything had to be rational. Everything had to have a, you know, here and now uh, uh, explanation. Uh, I think the first thing that kind of made her start thinking maybe she wasn't going to be able to, to keep that belief forever was she uh, walked into um, her bedroom one day, I think carrying laundry or something, <laughs> and turns around and there's a man standing there um, who she said was dressed in late 1800s attires, what she described uh, with formal shirt and a vest and trousers. And he was uh, older and had a receding hairline. And she said he just looked real and she just it startled her and she jumped and actually dropped what she was carrying. And when she kind of shrieked, then he disappeared. And uh, we, we spent uh, several years with that story came up, her saying, I, I don't know, I had to have imagined it, maybe it was a daydream, etc. Um, and she did that for a long time, but um, you could tell that she kind of wondered too. And then later on, she had experiences that she finally said, okay, something's going on. <laughs> Um, but things would happen on, not only in the house, but on land. Um, there'd be times that, um, animals would react as if, um, something was there that no one could see, um, tracking something, um, even like in an open field, etc. Sometimes, um, uh, everything going dead quiet, almost like there's a predator there, but from any indication, you didn't have any coyotes or mountain lions or anything else coming through um, that just didn't quite square up. And probably the most um, vivid things that would happen is that we would camp sometimes down by the river, which uh, we figured out later was where the settlement was and where some of the more active Civil War uh, fighting occurred um, there. And during the day, everything would be fine. And sometimes at night, too. It didn't happen every time. But um, the first time it happened, we were camping. We had a campfire going. Uh, our dog was down there. and She was a, a boxer. And she was she was not afraid to go anywhere. She'd go running through the woods, etc., on her own, go chase a rabbit, whatever. Um, but that day, as the sun started going down, she started acting different than she normally would. She seemed guarded, very watchful. Sometimes the hair on the back of her neck would stand up. Uh, and as it got dark, I noticed she would not venture beyond the ring of light from the campfire. 
which was not like her. She would normally still go explore at night otherwise. But we still thought, okay, odd, but, you know, you don't think that much about it. We end up going to sleep, and it's about two in the morning, and there's five of us camping. And I remember waking up to the sounds of people running, and I thought, well, that's that's really weird. And I, you know, kind of sit up, and everyone's there, and a couple other people are starting to to wake up, hearing the same things, and. It sounded like a good number of people running through the underbrush on different different directions around us. And then at first I thought, oh, is it deer? And then you listen, and it's definitely bipedal. And Sadie, our dog, uh, I look over, and she's sitting in front of the tent, just inside, just just guarded and tense and just starts growling very lowly and um, uh, ends up backing up into the tent and it, it like in front of everybody, like she's guarding everyone. And this went on for probably five minutes. And, this actually this happened before we ever knew exactly the details of the battle. So fast forward years later, I'm an adult researching, and I find the details on the battle, and realize, thinking back, where where this is taking place, you had a running battle between the Union and the Confederate soldiers, and they they described it as being close enough to hear each other breathing, running through and everything, and realize where we where we would camp was exactly where this was going on. That is really something that will really give you a, uh, a, a lot of pause for thought, won't it? <laughs> when you draw those, those connections, that is remarkable. Um, Lisa, so today we're going to be talking mostly about Haunted Joplin, which came out about 10 years ago. Um, but it came out right around the same time as several of your other books. And it, it, it seems as though that you actually published a little cluster of books on the paranormal right around uh, those years, 2012, 2013, 2014, that sort of thing. Um, before we get to Haunted Joplin, will you tell us just a, a little about this? these other books that you were working on at the same time so listeners can kind of get a sense of what, what your research interest was back then? Okay. Uh, the, the first book that came out was um, uh, Civil War Ghosts of Southwest Missouri, which covered a, a lot of the history uh, – battles and things going on in Southwest Missouri during the war, and then the ghost stories that came out of it. Um, and then Haunted Joplin was the next one. Um, there was another one in there um, that was in the Wicked series, Missouri's Wicked Route 66. And then I published uh, Haunted Carthage, Missouri. And um, Carthage is not too far from Joplin. Um and so they, they all center on southwest Missouri. You write that this area has a wide variety 
of unusual phenomena dating back to the early 1800s when uh, written records began to be kept. You say that there are plenty of Osage accounts, but that they were more oral in nature, so we don't have quite as many of those sort of transcribed. We have a few, but maybe not as many as the um, the early settlers. Now, right. I was curious because you, you say this echoes a conversation that we had with Peter Zablocki a, a week or so ago. Uh, you write that this area enjoyed, and in some cases still enjoys, a high degree of folklorish beliefs. Things like ghost black dogs, like phantom cabins, which I love, uh, the witch pegs, the kind of traditional superstitious uh, beliefs. He was writing in the Revolutionary War era along the Atlantic seaboard, um, but uh, you're writing in an area which it struck me is much more remote and distant from, say, major urban centers, right? And so I was curious, uh, what connections do you see between, say, the remoteness of the area you're describing in southwestern Missouri and the kind of evolution or development or continuity of these folklorish beliefs? Well, I think th- I think there is a direct relationship because when um, when you mention um, folklore, etc., on the Atlantic seaboard in the 1700s, a lot of the people who were settled there at that time then started moving west or south and then west. And a lot of the settlers in this area came uh, south and then up through um, Tennessee, Kentucky, and over into the Ozarks. And the area, particularly early on, was rather secluded, not only population-wise, but also geographically, because it's a, a pretty rugged territory. And so earlier on, people who, settlers who came through, often, uh, if they stayed, they often were people who they were escaping something from further east, whether, you know, it was tragedy or running from the law, that kind of thing. They were they were looking to get away. Then you start having a few families coming in, settling. Um, but it, so you have an area that was heavily populated with native tribes, uh, but a lot of the area they would not permanently inhabit. Uh, they would uh, migrate through different areas during hunting season, etc. Um, and so you had some permanent Indian settlements, but not not that many. And so you you would get a lot of early settlers running into. The, the Native Americans. It's changing lore. And ironically, there were a lot of similar th- uh, themes. And a lot of the settlers were uh, Scotch-Irish, which uh, they carried their folklore from the old countries, from the British Isles over. And so you had a long-standing belief in things like ghosts and witchcraft and booger dogs and things like that, so that um, they brought those beliefs with them and used them contextually to explain their surroundings and what things that happened here. So, um, and since it took longer for a lot of more of the 
commercial transportation to get through because it took uh, railroads tended to go around this region for a while because they were hard to build through the mountains and so forth. Um, you retained that uh, sense of older place and belief longer, I think. Yeah. And you also have a very interesting history of um, conflict in the region. I mean, you write that the when the by the time of the Civil War and the tensions surrounding um, the secession and the Confederacy came to armed conflict, of course, it was a, a prominent area for skirmishes. Uh, what was interesting, though, is that you write that the mixed loyalties of locals. Some were Union sympathizers and other were, others were um, Confederate sympathizers. That led to this kind of long-standing tension in the area where you would have, say, a, a Union sympathizer, sympathizer harboring a runaway slave, and then they would be found out, and then the Confederates would come and hunt them, you know, the bald knobbers and that sort of thing. Um, that history of conflict is fertile ground for, as you say, the residual entities or the spirits that were not at rest. And I, I should say, though, when, when you mention when you mention the ball knobbers, that is a little later. That's that's um, late eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. And actually, the ball knobbers were were all former Union men. Oh, were they? Okay, I may have misunderstood that. Okay. Yeah, I, I think people often associate ball knobbers because of the mass with the clan with. Um, more racist groups later, but they they tended to be union men who uh, and they it started out more as community grassroots law enforcement because during the war basically all law enforcement had had evaporated from Southwest Missouri and so even after the war in particularly Taney and Christian County which were even more rugged than exactly where I am, um, it took a long time for basically things to be rebuilt. And so you just had a lot of outlawry um, and um, businessmen, professionals actually started the ball knobbers as a way of trying to police ourselves until law enforcement became effective again. And then in certain instances, it got out of hand and, um, and so that's where that went. But, but it, again, it, it goes to the ruggedness of the territory, which led to those things. Well, you'll forgive a Mississippian who uh, has heard accounts of vigilantes wearing masks and riding on horses uh, for getting that a little mixed up. So thank you for clearing that yeah. up for me. <laughs> no, no, yeah, you're, you're, you're good. I mean, and it's, it, is a, it is a common uh, assumption. And I think that, and that is just part of as that story has evolved, people have, you know, it, it, it fits certain motifs. And so that, that has become sort of the pop culture version of it. Yeah. So let's shift towards um, the more present day experiences that you have been investigating, some of which have ties to that era and which have uh, throwbacks or, as you say, residual entities. Uh, the first sort of briefcase I wanted to ask you about was Royal Heights. Uh, you mention your investigation of a young boy's experience named Bobby. And that is a really curious case that the Paranormal Science Lab 
went in search of a pretty pretty unsettling actually if, if once you start getting into the details will you tell us what happened at Royal Heights yeah uh, Royal Heights is 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 a is a neighborhood in the Joplin area and it's actually a very old area um, the original Butterfield stage route um, actually had um, a line through Royal Heights and the stage stop was there. And so it was one of few roads that was really traveled in the 1850s and 1860s. And then when the war broke out, it was also used for troop movement through the area. And one of the um, early stories that comes out of that area is that um, we do know that there were some soldiers that were executed along the stage road in Royal Heights and were hanged. And um, it's interesting because, of course, particularly uh, on the frontier out here, you didn't have detailed daily reports the way you did in the Eastern theaters and you just didn't have the number of people involved. And you, if you've ever seen a civil war field desk, which is like a lectern that you would have to carry around, you can understand why that didn't get done. So we do know it happened. It happened along the road in Royal Heights, but we can't say it was this tree, but the story grew up in the area that the, the tree remained, um, and that's probably because the area became depopulated during the war. People, if they weren't fighting, they left. Um, many were starving. There was a scorched earth policy used by both sides. So um, there just weren't too many people left to, to deal with things. Going back to the folklore issue, um, one uh, lore takes it that if you have a hanging tree, and this goes even back to the British Isles, if there was a hanging tree uh, afterwards, the locals would cut it down because the lore went, it would become haunted. Um, and that, I mean, and that makes sense with uh, British and Celtic lore that along with trees uh, were homes for elemental spirits. And so they were very active uh, the the old superstition of knocking on wood for luck comes from that. You would knock on a tree to wake up the elemental spirit to ask for protection and guidance. And so you would cut down a hanging tree so that you didn't bother the spirits and the, that the, the spirit of the hangman wouldn't linger there. The story goes no, that basically the hanging tree stayed. And no one really, over time, it's been lost as to what tree it was and how long it stood. It theoretically could still be standing. So, um, and, and it kind of fits the area. There are quite a few uh, stories of homes being haunted in the area, that kind of thing, that um, some that you can point to something that happened, say, in the family there, and some that are a little harder to pinpoint a cause. This particular uh, situation, we were called in by a young family. They had a young son, and they had they had lived there for several years at that point. Um, 
And as, as the boy became a toddler, uh, they started noticing things, um, like particularly in the bathroom, if they were giving him a bath or something, he sometimes would act frightened and that they couldn't explain. It wasn't that he was scared of the water type thing. And he would watch a particular corner up around the ceiling. And uh, as he started being able to talk, he would talk back to it and, you know, like, no, 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 that kind of thing. And then things started um, sort of escalating and they had a bed, they had a toddler bed um, that the the mattress, uh, the way it fit in there, it was counter countersunk so that it couldn't slide around. So the top of the mattress was actually uh, below a little lip all the way around the bed. So it can't slide. So one evening, um, they're in, you know, parents are in the bedroom. And they hear a big thud, crashing sound, and run in the other room, and the, the baby, the, the boy, he's about two at this point, is sitting in the middle of the floor with his eyes, you know, big as saucers, and the uh, mattress was tipped as if someone had taken one side of it and flipped it and kind of fling, flung him out. Um, there's no way that he could have done that. It was too heavy. We tried, uh, recreating it. They had a photo of what they found. Um, and it, it would take uh, a pretty strong man to have done this. And the way the bed was sitting, it would be almost impossible to do, to, to be able to get a hold of it and do that. Um, then the boy started, at first they thought it was an imaginary friend, started talking to someone and he kept, and he called this friend Jackson. Um, and, uh, they, they thought it was odd because that's not a typical name. It was not the name of anyone that they knew. Um, so they had no idea where he would have come up with the name Jackson. Uh, then they kind of started figuring out over time that um, this wasn't just a playful thing that um, uh, the boy would argue with Jackson and he started acting afraid of him, uh, that Jackson was trying to hurt him, you know, uh, things like that. And um, they had never been able to see anything or anything. So, um, then the parents started uh, experiencing a few things. They started hearing noises and, and so on and so forth that uh, at that point they thought, well, maybe it is haunted. And so they end up calling us in. Um, and what we, what we were able to find through research was that the house had been built around the turn of the century. And in, um, I believe it was in the mid-40s, there was a fire in the house, which someone had, had, had did pass away. And um, the area, when they, when they uh, fixed the house and remodeled and built onto it, we figured out where, from the, from the, the uh, fire department's reports, where they found the person who passed was where was 
where the bathroom was now. The bathroom hadn't been there at that time. The layout was different. But where the bathroom is is where they, this person had passed. And um, so we ended up kind of uh, thinking that what the boy was seeing in the bathroom probably was this person. And we we got EVPs um, that were pretty clear that of, of a man's voice saying that, yes, he's the one who scared the boy, he didn't like the boy, he didn't want him there, he didn't like the parents, um, and basically that he was just trying to get them out. Um, and it was very, it was very responsive uh, as far as on point to things that you would say and then a responsive EVP, uh, whereas a lot of times you get things that seem to be random, non-responsive, you know. Uh, you know, what, what's your name? It's cold as a response. Th those kind of things that are just seem to be residual. This seemed to be very much aware of what was being asked and responding to it. Well, I couldn't help but wonder after I read this account, I mean, it's a little unusual to have a spirit take a malicious um, stance towards a child, right? I mean, the children are supposed to be the <laughs> uh, the innocent ones, you know, in these in these sorts of accounts. But I was curious, um, do you have any idea whether that family stayed at Royal Heights or did they <laughs> do the smart thing? Uh, and they, they didn't. They did at least for a while. I know they did at least for a while. I, I think they they did move uh, eventually, but I know at least for, you know, about six months or so afterwards that they were still there. Um, um, I had some information later that made me think that they had moved. Um, uh, and I, and um, I kind of got the sense that it was someone that um, was very possessive of this is my house this is my space um, um a lot of times people will jump to the conclusion that something like that oh it's evil it's you know demonic it's something like that i didn't get that sense i got the sense that this is someone that this is my space you're in my space um they might have just been you know they may have been just a curmudgeon in life um you know uh, I often say a jerk in life is usually a jerk in the afterlife. <laughs> That's how it came across is you're not supposed to be here and I'm going to do what I can to get you out. Um, you know, kind of getting rid of unwanted, you know, trying to get the unwanted uh, guests to leave that won't leave, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, it, this one is interesting because it has some parallels with a number of the other cases in your book. And, the one that it sort of overlapped with the most as I was reading was the case of the Prosperity School in Bed and Breakfast, which it's an extensive investigation. It's one of the longest, actually, in uh, in Haunted Joplin. And its background is of 
sort of almost typical for the for the time, sort of a mining story of um, of you know obscene wealth that then eventually led to decline and sat derelict and vacant, and then it was renovated later uh, in its life. And prosperity is interesting because it's a useful case study, right? I, I mean, you mention a number of concepts in the Science Labs investigation that feature prominently in all of your research. You have sort of methods and tools which seem to recur, but they were very visible during your your sojourn into the prosperity school. So I'd like to take those in turn. First, just give us a quick overview of what prosperity school was, and then I'm going to ask you kind of a lightning round style, sort of what what some of the the tools and tricks and methods and devices and so forth uh, that came up were. Sure. Um, the The schoolhouse was built in 1907. Uh, prosperity was a mining camp. Um, the the Joplin area was the largest lead zinc mining field in the world. Um, and so you would have camps pop up different places if, if they thought it was uh, likely to hit something. And that's what happened there. And they, they hit pay dirt. Um, there were seven or eight pretty lucrative uh, mines going. And so you had enough people right there that they decided to build a school um, two-story brick schoolhouse, um, and, uh, uh, was in use, uh, for decades and then, um, got absorbed into larger school district, um, and that building ended up standing empty, um, went to deterioration, disrepair, um, got to the point where, you know, ki- kids would go out there looking for ghosts and that kind of thing, and then eventually was purchased and uh, redone and turned into a bed and breakfast. Um, and the interesting thing about that is they really, they retained as much of the character of the schoolhouse as they could. Um, and so, but yet turning it into not only a bed and breakfast, but the owners lived in part of it. Um, and so, and it was, the decor featured a lot of items from the school, from uh, history related to the area and so forth. And so... Let me just make sure I got this right. You are, you're, when you stay there, you're, you were sleeping in old classrooms that had been converted into... Bedrooms. Yes, they okay. have been converted into uh, small suites, you know, uh, bedroom suites, uh, but they they were former classrooms, yes. Okay, because listeners may well recall our interview with Allison Chase uh, about a month or so ago in which she told us about a really spooky haunted basement classroom at Erasmus Hall in Brooklyn, New York, and um, a pretty wild account of, of something that happened down there. And ever since uh, hearing Allison talk about it and now reading your account, I've just thought, you know, an old classroom is basically the last place I would like to spend the night sort of somewhere. <laughs> Give me like an abandoned mining shaft any day of the week after that. <laughs> it's not the only school that um, that I've investigated that's haunted either. I don't know what it is about, about schools. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't want to find out, Lisa. Um, so you mentioned these 
these trigger objects, okay? Um, this is lightning round question number one. You mentioned trigger objects at Prosperity. What are those and why are they significant? Trigger objects are, are things that uh, you introduce um, to, to the space and the investigation that hopefully would be familiar to any ghosts that are likely to be there. <clears throat> and at Prosperity, they were all around because they had accumulated a, a large collection of items from the school and, and its years of being a schoolhouse. So <clears throat> you had you had school records, you had desks, you had all, all of the little things that would have been in a school that if someone was there that had been there while it was a school would recognize. And so <clears throat> you would utilize those things um, as, as, uh, as a, tr quote, a trigger for the memory of a, of a ghost. Of, and um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. It's important to keep our uh, skeptical hats um uh, maybe not totally snugly around us, but you know, just sort of loose, loose fitting uh, for the time being. Now, shadow persons. What are shadow persons? You've already mentioned them in a different context, but what exactly are they? Because you did have one there. Yes, um, shadow, shadow persons or shadow people are sort of think of the negative image of an apparition. Um, they appear as pure lack of light more than shadow, uh, because they tend to be darker than the darkness, even in total darkness. It's often you can actually see them against total darkness. You could be in a basement with no light and you still can see that shadow person. Um, think of a black hole, it's absorbing light almost. Um, and they are, you usually see them in the, um, you know, in a human outline form. Some are more detailed than others. Some, you know, it's a rough outline. Others I've seen where you, you could literally see the edges of a shirt tucked into pants and a hat and things like that. Um, and they, there are shadow people at, at the school. Actually, the very first time I was in there uh, for a preliminary walkthrough before first time I investigated uh, the owners and three three of uh, of us, me and two other investigators, were standing in the dining room, which originally was the school cafeteria, and we're standing there talking. And I'm standing sort of catacorner from the doorway, and the doorway opens into the main hallway in the school. And as we're standing there talking, I see movement out of the corner of my eye, and I look up, and I see what looks like someone moving towards the doorway, coming towards the doorway. And a shadow comes to the doorway and literally kind of leans in and, like, pokes his head in, looks around, and then continues down the hallway. Okay, well, that's and a little spooky. And it, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it appeared to be... Um, more of a woman's form, uh, but it was the movement was very natural, just like it was the gate. It was just like a woman had walked down the hall and stopped and kind of leaned in, like, "Oh, who's it, who's in here?" and then continued on her way. You know? Okay, so that was lightning round number two. Uh, lightning round number three is you mentioned 
camera distortions in otherwise working equipment combined with phenomena like sudden inexplicable battery drain. Uh, help us to figure yes. that out. Yes, and particularly um, particularly in one of the bedroom suites, um, um, it would you would set up cameras and things would seem to be working perfectly, and then. Uh, suddenly, the 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 feed on that camera would be distorted. It would, uh, and it wasn't necessarily just pixelation. It would be, uh, it, it was very odd. It was almost like, um, uh, like almost a film over the the lens at times, uh, and then sometimes it, it it would be some sort of distortion in the field that just seemed to kind of float through um but it, it wasn't f something formed that you can say oh that's a light or something but y it was just distortion that you couldn't explain and you would change out the camera and while that would be going on you know you might do three or four cameras and it would do the same thing so you change the cables you would you know everything every factor you would change and it it would continue to do that um it was also a room that people had the most experiences of being touched, um, not only during investigations, but people who would stay, guests. Um, guests would report um, waking up in the middle of the night uh, and feeling like you know the, the covers were being tugged. Or um, one guest reported she had, um, spent, she had come into town for business and spent the night and during the middle of the night, she kind of was roused and had the sensation of child crawling into bed next to her. And she said she was so sleepy, it, it, didn't, it didn't hit her that she wasn't at home and her kids weren't there. So it was like, oh, you know, Jimmy crawled into bed I, you know, and she fell back to sleep and woke up the next morning going, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So that's a bit, that's, um, that's sort of extra spine tingling because in our conversation with Allison, who wrote Bizarre Brooklyn, she describes one of the events that kind of moved her needle was, uh, I'll let listeners go back and, and catch it for themselves if they haven't heard that story, but it also involves a child and a child sort of crawling up into her lap when there was no child present and sort of her lapel being tugged and that kind of like, that presence searching for an adult for either comfort or for, dare I say it, you know, something more nefarious, <laughs> right? Um, who knows? But it's the same kind of, same kind of um, motion there. So that's a little intense. Okay, moving on. Round four. Round four. Uh, EVPs, you've mentioned already, and we've discussed a little bit in previous interviews, but here you claim to have interacted with an entity through your flashlights. Now, I could not help but think of uh, season one of Stranger Things with, um, you know, Will in the walls, right, with the lights and, uh, you know, Winona Ryder. I mean, you did this years before the, the Duffer brothers got their hands on the on the idea, but can you just tell us what you were, you were sitting on the floor and you sort of, you disconnect flashlights, but then they magically turn on. I mean, what's going on here? Okay. Um, so, and, and, and there's, 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 uh, there, there's definitely uh, skeptics, um, uh, with flashlights. Um, and we tend to use mag lights, uh, 
because because of their construction. Because um, there's a, there's a lot there, there's some that that uh, if you they're push button and they re- require a spring to operate that kind of thing. There's just a lot of variables too. But mag lights are aircraft grade aluminum, um, and I actually talked to engineers um, about this, um, trying to figure out okay how is this how is this working? Why does this happen? Um, because what you do is if you take a mag light and you um, take the cap off, like you're um, uh, going to change the bulb, um, the default position is on. And, um, and actually, they, if, if you actually read it on the packages, if you, you can set a mag light in its cap and set it down, and they, it's candlelight mode because it will always stay on, so you can use it camping or whatever. And um, there's an O-ring, and it's a pretty heavy O-ring that uh, sits on, on, on the housing that when you put the cap on and rotate it down, it pushes that down. And so um, you, you actually have to do that to break the battery gap. The battery gap is always on otherwise. And so most uh, skeptics will say, well, if the light's coming on and off, there has to be physical movement. Um, and um, it, either the, the case is flexing somehow, and it, it's thermodynamics, it's temperature variation. Well, talking to engineers, they um, consistently always told, well, for that to happen, you'd have to have an energy exchange that would release about 2,000 degrees of heat. So that's not, that's not happening. You um, would feel that. <laughs> just a little, little just a little, a little crispy. Um, and ironically, when you are doing EVV sessions and you have a light that starts going on and off quite a bit, almost invariably, it will be, the case will be ice cold in comparison to, say, another one. It will get colder, not hot. Um, Some will say, oh, it's vibration. Uh, One thing that we tend to do is we'll set, we'll set the lights, um, and put them out and then literally bang on the table if they're on the table, stomp on the floor, etc., to see if, if it sets them off. And if it, if it does, we pull that flashlight. We throw it away. Um, and so it, it's not something that is going to happen with just you know, vibration of in a room or someone walking across the room, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and um, what is interesting to me is we will we'll just set them, um, and a lot of times we'll use several, and then just go about and go about an EVP session and see what happens. And there are places that you know you don't get anything. Um, my house, for example, I've set lights up on camera 24 hours a day. I have never had a flashlight go on and off in this house. And there are a number of people who have seen full body apparitions in my house. The guests in my house who have never been here before. I've had a couple who ended up running into someone in the, you know, in the hallway going to the bathroom. Um, but they don't interact. Um, 
but there are places that something does manipulate it. And so what we tend to do is if you're starting to get reactions that seem to be really timed with a particular question, what we will do is then spaced out through the questioning, we will ask that question again, and then we will phrase it differently um, so that um, we're looking for, are we getting internally consistent responses to questions over time in an EVP session with it? It's kind and, of a measure of repeatability, which is, okay, right. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like if you ask the question, um, over the course of a couple of hours, if you ask the question 10 times and you get a hit off of it once, eh, it's probably random. But if you start getting hits consistently over time, that becomes interesting. Now, I have to confess, as I read your account, we'll talk more about that next week with uh, the Connor Hotel, but as I read your account, uh, there was one phrase that sort of stuck out in my mind as I was reading. And um, the phrase was, I'm going to quote here, unfortunately, no anomalies were captured on camera equipment. And, you know, Lisa, I have to say, I was sad too. <laughs> I was kind of sad too. I kind of thought that that was unfortunate. I was really looking forward to seeing some sort of um, you know, a uh, shadow person oh, outline yeah. or, you know, just give us, give us something to work with here. I was a little, I was a little disappointed. What can I say? Not at you, but with you, you know? So now let me, let me ask you this. Um, that's the end of our lightning round. And I'm curious because several weeks ago we had a good conversation with author Brian Clune, who is one of your colleagues when it comes to interviewing, excuse me, who is one of your colleagues when it comes to researching the history of the Mother Road, Route 66. And he takes up the Mother Road at its western terminus, of course, uh, where it enters California and kind of it digs into the ghost towns and the old mining towns that sort of uh, dot the landscape following the rail line and so forth. Now, he, in his book, he writes that uh, some of the ghost towns are still a little hard to find. Some of the ghost towns are still there. You can still visit them uh, today. But with prosperity, with your case here, unfortunately, it's not possible. I looked into it and it closed in about 2016, which was really sad uh, to, to say. But here's my question. Now that it's vacant, number one, do you think that that would increase activity there? No, or number two, does that justify another investigation, right? Is it time to bring the flashlights out again? I, I would love to, except for uh, it, it closed because um, one of the owners passed away and then um, her husband ended up selling it and it sat for a while. Uh, currently, very recently, it's been sold and a family is living in it as a private residence, which I find very interesting. And I think that over time, activity will hypen up there because of that. Um, I would be very interested, um, but I, I respect their privacy um, and they know they can reach out if they decide to. But uh, to me, uh, a location like that now 
being a private residence, my guess is that over time activity will will increase. Have you done the honorable thing and given this family your research <laughs> to make sure that they know what they're getting my, into? <laughs> well, my understanding from the former owner was that he he uh, enlightened them when he sold it to them. One can only hope. Lisa, we are going to pick up right here next week on Crime Capsule. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you in a week's time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Haunted Joplin, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org. Join us again next week for the rest of our interview with Lisa and the end of our series on the paranormal in American history. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs>